You know, there are some words in the Bible that have lost their meaning or they, are, uh, they have been distorted, and minister is one of those. Wouldn't you agree with me? The word minister. Normally when we hear that word, we think of a paid vocational pastor, but the word actually means something different in the Bible. Uh, it simply means a servant, one who serves Christ. In fact, the, the Greek word doulos means slave. So in the truest sense, all of us who believe in Christ are ministers. You know the name of the person next to you? Then say, uh, hello, minister, and say their first name, all right? Go do that right now, all right? See, that is true of them. They are a minister. Now, if you do not follow Christ, first of all, I want you to know you're welcome here, all right? I'm so glad you're here. Uh, we hope that by you coming here, you can see the, the, the love of Christ, love of this body, the truth of God's word, and come to know him. Our prayer would be that you would learn what it means to be a minister, and that we present, okay, who do trust Christ, would uh, be better at this ministry thing and learn what it is that uh, God is looking for in each of us as, as his servants. So we're looking at the model minister today, the motive, manner, and message of the model minister. Let's all stand as we look at our passage. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Medellini. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So verses 13 through 16, what we see here is that this missionary team on this third journey of Paul has been split up. Luke and the others take a sea route, a ship, and travel to these different cities. And Paul takes the land and goes to Asos. Now, we're not told why Paul went by land. So anything I say would be merely conjecture. Nobody really knows. Some will say, well, it's because, you know, he just wanted to spend time with God and do that by himself. We just don't know. But he went by land. We are told that once the group connected again at, at Asos, Paul did not want to go to Ephesus. Now remember, 
He has been collecting money from various churches that, that uh, he's been around uh, on this trip and wanting to collect it to give to the church at Jerusalem. They have been experiencing uh, great poverty. There had been a famine, so the believers were in great need. So he's eager to get back there. That was one of the reasons why he wanted to go to Jerusalem. Now, the stops on his third missionary journey here are like a, it's almost like a historical tour. Uh, the offshore island of Chios was the birthplace of the poet Homer. And then the island of Samos was where Pythagoras, the uh, founder of mathematics, was born. Miletus was about 30 miles from Ephesus, and Paul did not want to go directly there. We think it's because he knew that if he went there, he had ministered there for three years, raised up this church, trained the leaders, that if he went there, he would not be able to pull himself away and arrive at Jerusalem in an expedient way. So he compromised. He basically set up his own church conference all right, in another city where the leaders of Ephesus could meet him. And we take it up then in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. So from the first day, from the beginning until now, he has been an example to them. He's lived with them. And he's addressing the elders. It's an interesting word. Now, depending on your religious upbringing, if you've had any at all, if you don't, that's fine. But if you have, you might be familiar with this term or other terms that certain traditions give to the men or women that, that lead in a, in a church. The Bible actually uses three different terms that refer essentially to the same people. The first is elder, presbutas. It stresses the maturity of the person. Now, age is kind of implied, but, you know, it's not strictly given here. But there's certainly a spiritual maturity. You might remember when Paul wrote Timothy and said, I don't want you laying hands on a young person or commissioning a, a new convert. Didn't say young person. He said a, a new convert to leadership. So make sure a person has experience and and maturity before they enter into that position. So there's, a, there's an elder, so that maturity is implied. And then there's overseer, which is the Greek word episkopos, and sometimes it's translated bishop in other places. In fact, if you could just call me bishop from now on, I would appreciate that, all right? All right. Just season. This would focus on the administrative, organizational, you know, supervision of the affairs of the church. And then the third is poimen, uh, which is translated pastor, carries the idea of, of feeding, shepherding, loving the flock, right? So all three words are used here in Acts 20, which is kind of cool, and uh, speaks to the same, uh, same men here that were at this uh, little conference Paul had, had put together. Uh, verse 28 uses the term overseer and then uh, the verb form of pastor uh, is used to feed the flock. So what Paul is basically demonstrating here is that the Holy Spirit wants to oversee the flock with these variety of people that have um, maybe even a variety of, of expertise, but it describes all different 
parts of this leadership structure in the church. Uh, so there's a plurality. That's the point I'm trying to make. A group of people. Not just a, a pastor who kind of runs like a CEO, but a group of people that can hold each other accountable. And if you're, if you're unaware of how we do it here, that's how we do it here. Now, even though people might call me pastor, I really am an elder with other elders in our church. And I really don't have any more authority than any other elder, except for that which might be delegated. I do more because it's my job, and you know these guys are the other guys are volunteers. But you know they can fire me. I am held accountable to them. They do a an annual evaluation. We serve together as men in a plurality of, of, of leaders. Now, if you take a quick tour through the New Testament and you see what elders do, you realize why you need more than one guy doing it. All right. For instance. Elders pray for the sick. Uh, elders teach the word of God. Elders protect the flock from doctrinal error, uh, something that is rarely talked about today, or frankly, nobody seems to even care about doctrine, but that's one of the jobs of the elders. They are to ordain or position other people for ministry, encourage them, you know, train them, equip them, empower them. They are to incorporate church discipline, so you deal with things in the church. Like, for instance, in, in 1 Corinthians, you might remember the man that was sleeping with his stepmom, and Paul's writing the Corinthians saying, guys, you got to confront this. You can't let this you know, go on. And so elders do that within a church to confront those kinds of things. It's a very unpleasant thing, but you, know, you do it for the rest of the body. And then they're to manage the overall affairs that uh, in giving the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3, it talks about managing the household of God. And so those are all aspects of that position. So what Paul seems to be doing here is passing the baton and clearly leaving the responsibility of the church in Ephesus to these men. Now, it's really a succession plan. Paul isn't going to, you know, he's planning on not seeing them again. So it's a succession plan in flesh and blood. Frankly, some leaders hold on a little too tightly to the position, right? And they don't want a plan. Now, this is true not only for churches, but for businesses as well. And they think of themselves as quite indispensable. And what it does, it often leaves the organization in peril. I've talked to other pastors, and they have told me, it's really a lot harder than I thought to retire and just you know, hands off. They'll put their nose in the business. You know, it's just difficult. It just is. You know, it's a very human thing, but a succession plan helps to uh, kind of describe what the boundaries are and avoid those catastrophes. I've read of other well-known pastors, if, if I told you their name, I don't want to throw them under the bus, but you would know them. Their churches went through uh, great turmoil because these successions were not done well. So that's what Paul's doing. He said, here, you guys take this now, and you do this, all right? Now, he's essentially giving his farewell speech, and we see this throughout Scripture. We saw Jacob in Genesis 49 doing this. Uh, Joshua gave a farewell address to Israel in Joshua 23, 24. Samuel addresses the nation in uh, 1 Samuel 12. And then it's essentially what Jesus did at the Last Supper. You know, he's telling uh, his disciples, all right, now, I need you guys to do this. This is what I want you to do. I'm not going to be here anymore. So this is what Paul is doing. He's wanting to 
leave a legacy, giving these guys a glimpse of what their responsibilities are and, and the model that he has set for them. We're seeing the first thing in verse 19, first characteristic of what a model minister does, and that's the motive, the motive of serving the Lord Jesus. Serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. He was serving the Lord. The emphasis is upon who he was serving and what he was not serving. He was not in it for the money. Verse 33, in fact, says, he coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. There's something to be said about how spiritual leaders live, how they handle their stuff. There's something to be said for that. And sometimes it can get in the way uh, of ministry because they make it about those things. I mean, it happens. Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church in California, has taken an interesting approach. Now, he has sold millions of books. And in 2005, Warren returned his previous 25 years of salary that his church had given him. And he decided from henceforth he would no longer take a salary from the church because he could live off of the book sales, all right? So my book is coming out next year. (laughs) He and his wife are called reverse tithers. You know what that means? They are living on 10% of their income and they give away 90. You can say what you want, but I like that. I like that. In fact, he was quoted as saying, I drive a 12-year-old Ford. I've lived in the same house for 22 years. I bought my watch at Walmart and I don't own a boat or a jet. Now, what I appreciate here is that He has filtered his possessions through a biblical ethic, stewarding them in light of what's being effective for the gospel. Because sometimes when you see, you know, these televangelists, it's like, now, it's hard for me to think that you're interested in the gospel when you've got the jet, and you've got the rolls, and you've got three houses over a million bucks. Hard to imagine you're in it. Now, of course, you, you pay the minister to make a living, right? You don't keep him poor and keep him humble. There's a space, plenty of space in between that and uh, these, I think, egregious amounts of money that are, are paid. And Paul says, I'm not in it for that. I'm not in it for that. I like what he said. I'm not in it for the clothes, the way I'm doing I'm not trying to impress people. You know, show them how cool I am or you know, how rich I am. There's something to be said for that. Now, Obviously, you, you know, you try to dress in a way that just is not going to get in the way. You don't want to create a distraction, right? So when Paul talks about serving the Lord, I've already mentioned it, he uses the same term that's used for a slave. He's a, he's a doulos. And the, the, the idea is that he's subservient to his master, just like a slave would be. Now, this is very uncomfortable language for us with 21st century sensibilities. 
to say, you know what, I'm a slave for Jesus. And we all should be slaves for Jesus. Very uncomfortable. But let's not forget that Jesus was not a you know, political revolutionary. He did not come to overturn every cultural system. He came to transform hearts, and then as people believed the gospel, came to him, then they would go to wherever they could have influence. So if out of the gate Jesus confronted every societal ill, the gospel would have been lost, the mission would have been thwarted. I've heard others criticize, and by the way, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm speaking here mainly to Christian leaders, or so-called Christian leaders, who do this kind of thing. And I, I don't mean to criticize a culture. I expect criticism from the culture. But when you hear this kind of thing from Christian leaders, I tell you, my, my hair stands on end. But what I've heard are those who criticize the Bible and will denigrate the Bible because they say that the Bible does not adequately deal with slavery, particularly in the, in the, in the New Testament. So therefore, it cannot be completely trusted because it does not provide for us the necessary treatise on slavery that they think should be there. Now, I'm not having the conversation right now with that individual. I'm having this conversation with you. You're like in my living room, so I'm going to talk rather plainly, all right? I wouldn't talk like this if I was with those uh, people who, some are friends, some I know. But listen, that's lame. That's just a lame kind of excuse, and it hardly deserves attention, but I have to because it's brought up so many times by people that I talk to. So let me just give you several reasons why I think it's so lame, all right? First, there are numerous cultural, social, and political problems that were present when Jesus arrived. Poverty was, was rampant. Economic inequities were rampant. The sexual mores were terrible among some of the political leaders, the emperors, and even in society. And it, it was a decadent time. Political corruption was accepted. Now, the Jews tried to militarily, you know, rebel against Rome because they saw all this and they were repelled by it. And all Rome did is come at them harder. I mean, they, they crushed them, essentially. And the Jews hated Rome for this. Tighter restrictions, more cruelty. The ancient mythology was a part of the worldviews of, of the culture, and, and that was represented in the art. Now, Imagine Jesus out of the gate when his ministry starts, when he's about 30 years old, goes down the list of all these things he hates in the culture. Oh, and by the way, I'm here to preach the gospel. Now, we've seen that even in our day. Remember the moral majority? People hardly heard the gospel. All they heard was an outside entity in a cultural war with others in our society, the gospel gets lost if you're trying to address every social ill from the outside through political means. I'm not saying you don't have the freedom to do that. I'm just saying that's not the ministry of the church, and you're free to disagree. Secondly, plenty of biblical content provides principles that counter the institution of slavery. 
and its abuses, as well as other issues we could talk about, right? It may not give a specific treatise, but you can build quite a case against slavery just using scripture, like people being made in the image of God. Even though you may not have a specific treatise on it, the principles are there where it makes a, a, a plain case. So for anyone, I think, who is intellectually honest about the Bible, they'll have plenty of biblical material there. But even if you don't have a specific treatise on it, here's one of the things I love about the Bible. It doesn't whitewash the issue. The Bible is a partly historical document, so you see slavery talked about. Now, if I'm writing it, if man was making this, I would not want to even address it and even mention it. But it is mentioned, not in the sense of, you know, giving this treatise on it, but Paul talks about, now this is how I want you to respond to your masters if you're a slave, and, and this is how I want the master to deal with the slave. So it's, it's addressed in that fashion, but he doesn't give a white paper of why I think this is wrong. The Bible's rooted in history, so it is mentioned. I'm not trying to whitewash it. I like that. I think the, the Bible is dealing with, with reality. Thirdly, is that first century slavery in Rome differed greatly from the slavery in the North American colonies centuries ago. There was greater freedom for the Roman slaves. Uh, many of them were educated. They were valued as employees of, of the household and much of the slavery was not race-related. Now, there were abuses, and Paul addresses some of those, but the differences in American slavery were clearly marked because slaves during the colonial times uh, were not considered human. It was racially motivated, and they had far less freedoms. Lastly, and again, okay, we're just talking as friends, there's huge hypocrisy when talking about this. And I'm talking about Christian leaders were trying to denigrate the Bible using slavery. They want to give off a tone of how concerned they are with people. And, you know, human rights were uh, so denigrated in the first century. And, you know, we're all about human rights and social justice. Really? Let me ask you this. In the greatest, I think, crime in American society in the killing of millions of babies, have you lifted a finger for that? Have you done anything to deal with abortion? Because most of the Christian progressives will stay away from that because that does not fit the PC cultural horde progressive ideology. So what I see it as is more of a sinister plan to discredit God's word. Because if you really cared about the people, you'd care just as much about the millions of babies that are slaughtered as you would about those that were in slavery. But instead, what we hear are crickets from the same crowd. Now, listen, I'm dealing and talking about Christian leaders. I'm not talking about the culture. I would expect that ideology from the culture. The culture is not our enemy. I'm not in a cultural war. I'm not fighting non-Christians or people have an ideology much different than the Christian ideology because I expect that. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, you are pilgrims in this world. The world will not 
except your ideology. So why are we trying to use our political muscle to trying to to get everybody to think our way? And what we're doing is making enemies out of people instead of saying, here's the gospel. Here's the beauty of the gospel. So I think people who are against this, the, the Bible, I'm saying, are against that, are not the enemy, but simply blind to moral reasoning, blind to God's moral order that's plainly illustrated in the scriptures. I just want us to think clearly about these things, all right? So that our faith, and particularly the Bible, is not denigrated by lame potshots, and I think they are lame. There are people who should know better and who are creating straw men and not being honest about the issues. So I want us to just be aware of that. Paul says he was a slave of Jesus. So he's taking a well-known cultural practice, drawing a parallel that his will is under that of his master, Jesus. That was his motive. We also see the manner of his ministry. The manner of his ministry was exemplary. Serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul did not try to be a religious celebrity, you know, maximizing publicity for every good deed that was done. He approaches the ministry with humility. He was not demanding that others serve him. You know, I've heard of some spiritual leaders bullying their staff or other people or workmates, yelling and screaming at them as a rule, not as an exception, demanding things they wouldn't demand of themselves. And it's really hard to see humility in that kind of manner. And then Paul adds that, you know, I come to you with tears. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, one, it tells us that part of it was related to the fact that it was Jews who was persecuting. Paul was a Jew. He grew up a Jew. He loved his brothers and sisters within Judaism. He was a, uh, one of the best Jews you'd ever know. So to have these people now against him, trying to kill him, it was hurtful not only physically, but emotionally. In addition to that, the fact is is that he ministered to his brothers and sisters, the fellow Christians, with tears. In Acts 20, 31, Paul said, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. It means he sincerely cared for them. He was not a drill sergeant. 1 Thessalonians 2.9, in fact, 2.9 through 11, says that he ministered like a parent and how parents will sometimes be in tears because they see how their children are acting and, and they cause you know, great distress. And that's what Paul is saying. Or, or they, might, they might beg and, and entreat a child for this way and they want to go that way. And that's heartbreaking when you're a parent. Because you want the well-being of your kids. And you can see down the line where that's going to lead, but they seem hell-bent to do this. And so there's tears because of that. 
which brings us to humility. Again, Philippians 2.3 says, With humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Paul is interested in promoting others before himself. That's what a good Christian leader does. They get more excited to see others succeed, and, and that brings great joy to them. In the flesh, we're more me-centered, self-centered than, than other-centered. We're not always quick to give others credit. I had to chuckle at a pastor who jokingly uh, told me this week, every time I see one of my pastor friends succeed, a little part of me dies. <laughs> now, he was being sarcastic, but you know, you get that. There's kind of that competitive thing going on, no matter you know, what business you might be in. And so Paul says, no, you know, there's, there's great joy when I see other brothers and sisters succeed. So there's a manner of humility and tears. And then there's a motive uh, that we've talked about. And lastly now, there is a message, a message that he was faithful to to proclaim the gospel and the word of God. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord. Now, he did not shrink. It means that he did not give in to fear. He was faithful to the gospel and the word of God. Whether in public or in the privacy of one's home, his message was the same. He didn't change it when he was in public to put on you know, a little show. He was going to deliver what would benefit people and what was truthful, no matter the context, he's going to give the gospel. He wasn't going to back down. He was going to give what was good for the individual, even if he sensed it might be unwelcome. It's hard to do. Paul asked the Galatians, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? You know, there is a growing pressure amongst churches today to give way to progressive forces and embrace the cultural code of tolerance and of any and all sexual expressions, to embrace relativism, you know, to just hug one another, sing kumbaya, don't hurt another person's feelings. Whatever you do, you never judge. You never confront. And so truth or a moral code take a back seat to one's feelings. Now again, I am addressing spiritual leaders. I know that for, for many of us, we have to deal with families where we're dealing with these issues and it's, and it's heartbreaking. So I don't mean to bring any condemnation down upon that one. Plus, I'm not I'm really talking about a worldview, okay? And I just want us to be, be aware of how the thinking goes, but particularly about religious leaders who propagate a false doctrine in these areas. This is very concerning, that freedom... And tolerance, uh, these become the, the climax of the ministries as opposed to truth and, and God's word. 
Paul said this, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And so Paul could say from beginning to end, I spoke to you the truth. I gave you the word of God without compromise. And certainly many hated him for it, especially the religious crowd. So don't be surprised if many in the religious crowd call you all kinds of names and don't accept it. But I beg you, as Paul would, to consider your conscience before God, to to just allow the word of God to speak for itself and then ask yourself, what does God really seem to be saying here instead of trying to take a cultural grid on top of the Bible, cutting out the parts we don't like or that are, uh, are uncomfortable. For the pastor and other spiritual leaders who falsely claim love by not addressing portions of God's word, I was talking to a pastor who's in another state. He was telling me a situation of dealing with another pastor who you know, has created some issues and problems for him. And, and it's all because they disagreed on an issue. And this other pastor has written books about love and tolerance and, you know, the, the progressive way within Christianity, and yet has been so intolerant, rejecting this other pastor who's simply speaking the word of God. Seems a little hypocritical to me. Those spiritual leaders who are that way are not only negligent, but Jesus addressed them. So, you know, here's the irony of this, um, because like this other pastor I was talking about in another state, we talk about following the spirit of Jesus or the words of Jesus, and that's a, a common thing theme within progressive uh, Christianity. So I'm going to give you the spirit of Jesus and the words of Jesus on this topic, and then you tell me what you think. This is out of Luke 17, and he, Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come, religious leader. The context are Pharisees he's speaking to. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were to cast into the sea, be cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, little ones is not children. Children are not in the context. He's speaking of followers of Jesus. So you have religious leaders misleading followers of Jesus. <laughs> so you misuse the word of God. You cause others to fall prey to that ideology, that deception, those schemes, those lies. And Jesus says, it would be better that you wear concrete shoes and jump off a boat into the lake. Then you face what you're going to face after that. Now, he doesn't tell us what they're going to face. I'll let Jesus decide that. I'm just saying Jesus' words. You want to follow Jesus and his words, his spirit? There you go. He's dealing with those who are misleading other Christians. Some may think I'm being harsh, but those are using the words of Jesus. He himself is called 
the word of God. So you have a revelation of God in the person of Jesus and in the scriptures. So I think he takes seriously those who misrepresent him and who discredit his word. Notice that faith and repentance are mentioned together in our passage in Acts. Uh, Acts 20, 21 testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The context dictates for us the meaning of this. If repentance is toward God, then what are people turning away from? Which is what the meaning of repentance is, to turn away from something. What are they turning away from? Well, anything that causes them not to turn to God. What, what would that be? Well, it could be idols. It could be thinking that you could save yourself. Okay? It could be any ideology that turns one away from God, you are saying no to that, repenting of that, and saying yes to God, and that leads to faith in Christ. Paul is saying anywhere, anyone can come to Jesus, regardless of race, background, religion, Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, can come to Christ and realize the grace of God and the, that they are dead in their sin, and that Jesus is their only salvation. The gospel is the only message that can save humankind. From author Arthur Schlesinger, we get a description of the spirit of the age. He's now deceased, American author. Some of you may remember him. I'm going to quote from him. He says it better than I think what anybody could in depicting, and actually he's an advocate for this spirit of the age, but listen to this. The mystic prophets of the absolute cannot save us. That's the first line. Wow. The mystic prophets of the absolute cannot save us. I mean, we could talk a whole time on that. Sustained by our history and traditions, we must save ourselves, at whatever risk of heresy or blasphemy. I mean, you know, I can hear Nietzsche in the background. <laughs> you know, it, it's just amazing, these words, but so stark in reality of giving a middle finger to God. We, we can find solace in the memorable representation of the human struggle against the absolute in the finest scene in the greatest of American novels. I refer, of course, to the scene when Huckleberry Finn decides that the, quote, plain hand of providence requires him to tell Miss Watson where her runaway slave Jim is to be found. Huck writes his letter of betrayal to Miss Watson and feels, quote, all washed clean of sin for the first time I had ever felt so in my life, and I knowed I could pray now. He sits there for a little while thinking how good it was all this happened so and how near I come to being lost and going to hell. Then Huck begins to think about Jim and the rush of the great river and the talking and the singing and the laughing and the fellowship. Then I happened to look around and see that paper. I took it up and I held it in my hand. I was a trembling because I got to decide forever betwixt two things and I knowed it. I studied a minute, sort of holding my breath, and then says to myself, all right then, I'll go to hell, and tore it up. That I may say, says Schlesinger, that I may say so, is what America 
is all about. <laughs> That's what America is all about. Freedom from those restraints of an absolute, of a God, of thoughts of hell. So the spirit of man says, and again, I have to remind you, people are not our enemy. These ideas are, okay? So let's not make the culture the enemy. The spirit of man says that freedom is to denounce the moral absolutes written in scripture and nature. And you have these progressive leaders just falling all over themselves not to take the word of God and read it as it is. And according to Schlesinger and others, that includes denying hell. Freedom comes from embracing relativism. Freedom, freedom, freedom. You can't encroach upon somebody's freedom. But listen, it's really begging the question because freedom is not a choice in and of itself. Freedom is merely embracing that humans have volition. So, for instance, saying you are pro-choice is a declaration that any choice is moral as long as that individually is consistent with your heart, with your feelings, and you do it sincerely. Any freedom is moral under that. Cutting off my right hand sincerely is a choice. But I dare to say that is a really stupid choice and does not lead to human flourishing. Claiming freedom and tolerance says nothing about the character of the choice you are making. And so I ask, is, is there freedom in denying the existence of God in the gospel? Well, yes, one can truly, uh, freely choose that, but it is at our own peril. Paul dedicated his life to convincing men and women that the best choice, indeed, the only choice one could make would be acknowledging their sin before a holy God and acknowledging the truth of the gospel that the Son of God came and died, was buried, and rose again. And that we could live then in the grace and under the sovereignty of God. For in that then I can see my sin. I can see that not all choices are equally good. And only in Christ can I see the folly of my independence from God. That is truly free, uh, freedom to me because I can see my wrong choices, I can see God's moral order, and I can choose that. So may the, may the motive, may the manner, and the message of a faithful minister steer us to the life giving gospel, and move us as believers in Jesus Christ to complete devotion without compromise to serving him. Let's pray.